Welcome to the city. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here, and uh, you guys sing loud and awesome. It sounded it sounded great being up here. Uh, I love hearing people worship. But you know, just to kind of jump into things, we got a lot to talk about today. So so I'm gonna I'm gonna go fast. But first, I need to tell you something. Uh, you you wouldn't know it to look at me, but I'm pretty average when it comes to sports. Okay. I know I'm just as surprised as you are. And you know, one thing. Uh, I, I don't do, except for bowling. Bowling is the ex- exception. It's the simplest of all the sports, but I'm the worst at it. Um, but what I've realized when it comes to sports, I played, you know, football and basketball. I play, I play golf now. And it's, one thing I realize is when it comes to pressure, I don't, I don't do very well. I don't perform under pressure. I was the, the kid on, on, the, on the basketball court, you know, if the game was on the line, like, please don't give me the ball, you know, <laughs> please. Uh, um, and, and, and have you ever been in that moment where, where you're, you're facing all this pressure and you kind of crumble? I looked up some of the biggest uh, choke jobs of all time in sports, and one of the most popular ones you might remember was Chris Weber. <coughs> excuse me, in the 1993 National Championship basketball game, right? His team, Michigan State, they were, they were favored to win that game. He would go on to be the number one pick in the NBA draft. But in this moment, at the end of the game, it didn't go too well for him. Okay, so, so he, uh, their, their team is down two points. He ends up with the ball. He panics. He calls a timeout. Uh, the problem is they didn't have any timeouts left. And so when you do that in basketball, you're assessed a technical foul. So the other team shot the free throw, got the ball back, and uh, they lost. I mean, it was brutal. Now, I had a very similar moment in my basketball career. It wasn't in college because I didn't play college basketball. It was in high school. Uh, it wasn't for a championship or anything important. We missed the playoffs. Uh, it was our last game of the year. We were playing at Shallow Water, and um, we were down big. So we were going to lose the last game of the year, the last game of my life. And, uh, but I had a moment, right, where I was at the free throw line. Again, free throws that, that meant nothing, but that doesn't matter. We were, I was in the, at the free throw line, and we were in the student section, the, the end of the so, – so they have fans that sit behind the baskets, okay? That's not something you're used to in high school. And their student section is going crazy, they, they, you know, shirts off, chest painted, and they're very mean, you know, very mean. And um, I airballed the free throw right in front of them. Pretty much the most embarrassing thing you can do in basketball, except for scoring in the wrong basket, which I also did one time when I was a kid. So, um, but but you know, very few people are clutch under pressure. When, when you add pressure to a situation, it just makes things more difficult. It makes people, most people, underperform. So, so what about pressure to perform spiritually? What about when it comes to your relationship with God? And could it be that, that we as Christians might just put too much pressure on ourselves to perform? And today we're, I mean, we're covering a lot of verses, okay? We have three separate little stories that Luke gives in order, and we're going to attempt to kind of connect those three, tie them together. Um, you know, we've been going verse by verse through Luke, and we're up to chapter 18, verse 18 today. So, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, it's going to be on the screen. Um, we're going to read the first little chunk. If you guys would stand just in honor of reading God's Word, and I won't make you stand up later, I promise. Luke 18, starting in verse 18. It says, once a religious uh, leader asked Jesus this question, 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not te- uh, testify falsely and honor your father and mother. The man replied, I obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard this answer, he said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for, the rich, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. Peter said, we've left our homes to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. You guys can have a seat. So you've probably heard this story before. Uh, the rich guy, the rich man, the rich young ruler is how um, Matthew and Mark uh, call, that's what they call this guy, the rich young ruler. He's some kind of religious leader. The, the, the term used for, for ruler in these, um, these verses is kind of a vague one, right? So he might be a ruler of a synagogue or a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, we, we don't know, but what we do know is he's a religious guy that's just very religious and moral and, and pious. And he has impeccable credentials, like he's doing things the right way. He really has a lot going for him. And this guy is so much different than the people that Jesus usually kind of encounters. He wants nothing from Jesus. He's not asking for healing. He's not asking to be fed. He instead comes with this profound theological Question. It's the very same question that the Pharisees, if you remember way back in chapter 10, they asked him this exact question to try to, to trap Jesus. But, but that's not this guy's intent. His question is sincere. He wants to know how to have eternal life. So he's doing a lot of things right. He recognizes his need, right? He, he recognizes that, that even though his life is going the way he wants it to, there's something missing, Despite all of his religious achievements and his superior morality, the thing he was searching for the most, he did not have. And he wanted it. And he came to the right person to ask the question. Now, he's got some problems too. First, he calls Jesus good teacher, okay? So, you know, that, that happened a lot in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but, but we're, we're, we're kind of in the last days now. Very few people are referring to him with with this kind of term. A lot of people are now calling him basically messianic terms. Like they're they're acknowledging his divinity. And this guy calls him good teacher. He was not aware that he was talking to God in flesh. He, He just wanted an answer to his question. What do I have to do to get to God? See, See, it's a flawed question from the very start. So what does Jesus do? In brilliant fashion, like Jesus always does, he kind of flips the question on its, on its end from this moral, ethical question to more of a relational question. He, he exposes this guy's heart, his motives. And instead of answering his question, 
he asked another question. Why do you call me good? Which absolutely pulls the rug out from under this guy. He, he brings up this issue with the term good. You're like, Jesus, what are you doing here? And, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good. What, what Jesus is saying, he's not saying that he himself isn't good, right? He's again exposing the flaw in this guy's question, in his understanding of what goodness is. Jesus wants to, to get this thing straight first. No one's good compared to God. See, we, we make the same fatal flaw when it, when it comes to our lives, the standard by which we judge ourselves and, and what is good and what is not good and how good is good enough. The standard by which we're judged, our goodness is judged, is not this human moral standard. It's God's standard. God's standard for goodness is what? It's perfection. And this guy thought he was better than he actually is. We, we make that, that same mistake because we can sometimes undervalue our own sin. Sometimes we can overvalue our own righteousness. But then Jesus plays his game for a minute. All right, so why do you call me good, right? Only God is good, but you've heard of these commandments. And he lists five of them. Note the ones that he lists. Don't commit adultery, don't commit murder, don't steal, don't testify falsely and honor your father and mother. He, he gives the, the second half of the Big Ten. And he, he leaves out the ones that pertain to our relationship with God and he gives the ones that are, that are about how we treat other people. Very interesting choice there. And, and, and what does the guy say? I've done all these since, since I was born, basically. Like, I, I've kept all these. And, and think about this in that moment. That has to give this guy some hope, right? He's like, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Jesus says, keep these. He's like, man, I've done pretty, pretty good with those, right? Most well-raised Jewish people would keep, you know, hopefully they're not murdering people or committing adultery. They're kind of the, the, the easier side of things. But he was obviously not at the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember when, when Jesus talked about these commandments, he, he didn't say just, he said, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder. But if you hate someone in your heart, it's, it's the same thing. You've heard don't commit adultery, but if you lust after someone in your heart, it's, it's committing adultery. So, so even again, this guy, he, he, he thinks he's kept the law better than he has. But Jesus wants him to understand, wants us to understand that the heart of the law, it's, it's not just about following rules. The, the law of God was not meant to be steps to get you to God. No, no his, his law was meant to be like a mirror, an x-ray to show you where you're, you're broken. If you, if you break a bone and you go get an x-ray, the x-ray doesn't heal you. It simply shows you where you're broken. So, so the question this guy should have asked is, man, if I've done things so much the right way and I've accomplished all this stuff, why is there still something missing? Why is he not satisfied? Maybe some of us could ask the same question. Oh, I go to church, I volunteer, I give money, I might pray from time to time. You know, I, I do all the right, I try to be a good person. Like, why is there still something missing? See, the, the law, religion, can't save anyone. It only shows you that you're sinners. And this guy, his, his own self-righteousness keeps him from seeing that. So he, like us, believes he was better than he actually is. 
And then Jesus kind of uh, drops the hammer. He, he digs up the, the root of, of the issue and he exposes this guy's heart in front of God and everyone else. But, but interestingly, Mark's account of this, this little interaction says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. How cool is that? This guy's missing it. He's misrepresenting who Jesus is. But God, his, Jesus' heart is, is so moved with compassion. He looks at him and he loves him. And then he tells him a very, very difficult truth. Because that's what you do when you love someone. He was giving him some, some tough love. He does the same thing with us, doesn't he? He doesn't want us to stay the, the way that we are. He, he loves us. Too much. He loved this guy too much to leave him where he was. So, so he, he challenged him. He says, you lack one thing. Then he gives him three things to do. <laughs> he says, sell everything that you have, give all your money away, and follow me. Now, now you, you won't find this in the Ten Commandments, right? You won't find it anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere does it say, in order to be a Christian, you have to give away everything that you have. So, so what's, he, what's he doing here? See, he's exposing this guy's failure with the first two commandments, the ones that Jesus himself say are the the greatest. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have and no idols. See, it's not a test of this guy's good deeds, but but Jesus is, is probing his heart, right? Testing, like, where's his allegiance, his affection, his priorities? He, he wants to know from him, and again, us, like, we can read ourselves into this, this spot. Is your faith in the things of earth or in God? We, we, we know, he, he said this over and over. We talk about it every other week. Like, it, the outward show does not matter. He looks to your heart, Jesus exposed the ugliness of this guy's heart, and he wants to expose the ugliness in ours. He he says, I want you to prefer me over everything. Everything. Over everything and everyone. So so, so when confronted with this, what does this rich guy do? Does he fall at Jesus' feet? He gets all his cash out and starts making it rain, you know, or whatever, doing handouts. Like, that's not the ending of this story. This story has a tragic ending because this guy, it says he went away sad. He shook his head and walked away from Jesus. Five minutes earlier, he was so excited. He could not wait to to learn the answer. He he wanted this this salvation, this eternal life so bad, but when he saw the price tag, he was no longer interested. It's tragic. It's a very familiar story in in our culture. So many are are unwilling to, to let go and surrender Everything in order to follow Jesus. He, he chose his wealth over God himself. W- what are the things in your life that you choose over him? What is it in, in your life that keeps you from fully surrendering, following Jesus? It's tough. Jesus 
acknowledges this. He, he, the very next thing, he turns to his disciples and says, man, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he says, it's basically impossible. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, you, you've heard this before too, right? And like me, you've probably heard the, the, you know, the one interpretation of of what this means, like about there being like a gate in the wall, the, the, the wall in Jerusalem and how it was called the eye of the needle and the camel could barely squeeze through it and it would maybe have to like kneel and kind of crawl through and you couldn't come through with any stuff, right? And it's like this beautiful picture of like, yeah, you know, you gotta love him more than your stuff. Unfortunately, it's wrong. <laughs> and there's no evidence of that anywhere and most scholars agree, that's not a thing. So what is Jesus saying? You might not want to know. He's saying it's like an actual camel going through an actual eye of a needle. He's saying that's how ridiculous this is. He took the largest land animal known to them and the smallest, tiniest opening that you could find around your house or whatever. So imagine this. Imagine this giant animal going through that, that little bitty eye of the needle. Like that's how impossible it is for the rich and for anyone for that matter to enter the kingdom of God. He's using hyperbole to say it's impossible. Now, what's he not saying? He's not saying the way to heaven is to empty your bank account. He's not, he's not saying that. He's asking in whom or in what do you trust? Where, where is, you know, what is your security in? What is it that you, you lean on? And then he says, oh, that, that thing. Yeah, I want that. Here's a quote from Daryl Bach, a theologian. He says, this passage challenges us to ask where our fundamental anchors of identity lie. Possessions can be one such root. They can shade our sight from the central values and chain our heart to the wrong point of identity. Few biblical figures are as tragic as this young rich man as he walks away from Jesus' invitation, but other factors, such as achievement, pride, and family, can also reside in that place that should be reserved for God. Anything that excessively anchors us to the earth rather than freeing us as commissioned representatives from God indicates a breakdown in the discipleship process. Listen to this last line. What is really frightening is how easy it is for all of us to choose earth over heaven. This is why it's, it's difficult, Jesus is saying, for the rich to enter the kingdom. He's already said you can't serve both God and money, right? But now he's saying it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples hear this, and it's kind of like we're hearing this and being like, what? Like the disciples can't believe their minds. They're like, well, what is this? Then who in the world can be saved? They were shocked because in those days, wealth, that was seen as like a sign that you were blessed by God. Like you were on the right side of things. And if you were really wealthy, you were really blessed by God. And so now Jesus is saying it's impossible for them. So they're like, well, if they can't get in, then who can? He says what's impossible for man is possible with 
God. Only God can change someone's heart. Only God can forgive your sins. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Only through total surrender to Jesus, making Jesus Lord of your life, of your family, of your job, of your money, of your stuff, can you have eternal life. Salvation doesn't come through keeping some kind of list of religious rules, right? Or trying to earn your way in by by some kind of superior morality. He's saying salvation comes through grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus alone. And again, Jesus is days away from, from entering Jerusalem and laying down his life to completely reset this whole religious system. See, this is what the, the rich guy failed to do, what we have to do today. We have to realize the foolishness of our own effort. The foolishness of our own effort. It's ridiculous to think that we can somehow, and again, as Christians, we'll say you know, the right thing. Like, obviously, we know we can't earn our way. It's only through grace or whatever. But in, practically speaking, the way we behave, the way we live our lives, it's as if we think we can earn his love his acceptance, his grace. But it's foolishness. Here's a good picture of what our effort looks like. All right, this is, uh, <laughs> this is, my, this is my youngest son, uh, Xander. He's 13 now. He would love that I'm showing you this. But he was so proud of himself. He was like, Daddy, I address myself. And I looked at him and I was like, hey, buddy, your, your underwear on backwards. And this was the moment he looked down and realized, like, his effort was completely misguided, right? Like, that's us. That's us. The foolishness of our own, our own effort. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. And you can look up what he's referring to here. It's not good. He's saying it's It's rubbish. Filthy rags. Our righteousness is disgusting to God. Then Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, he's talking about how he, he, he's the best Jew of them all, right? Since he was, you know, he was circumcised when he was eight days old. He's kept the law perfectly. He's the Pharisee of all Pharisees. And what does he say about all of it? Once all these things were, were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, not on us. If righteousness, salvation depend on, depended on how, how good you were, how religious you were, Saul, Paul, had it figured out beforehand. He's saying that, that, that means nothing. It is, it's worthless. What's possible for man is only possible with, with God. And then Peter speaks up because he always speaks up. He says, we've left our homes to follow you. He's like, hey, we're not in this boat. Like, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus tells him, yes, I assure you, everyone who's given up things, your, your house, wife, brothers, parents, children, you've walked away from everything for the sake of the kingdom, you're going to be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. He's saying your sacrifice won't go unrewarded. There's so much blessing, so much reward, so much to be, to be had of, of Jesus, both in this life and the next. Our own efforts are foolish. Let's keep reading verse 31. 
Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans and he will be mocked, treated shamefully and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. But they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. So here we go again. This is the seventh time Jesus has predicted his own death and still his disciples are like, we don't understand what you're talking about. They, they, were, they, they, they didn't get, you know, they're going to Jerusalem for Passover and what they don't understand is that Jesus is going to become that perfect Passover lamb. His death bringing an end to this entire sacrificial system. He, he knows this road they're on to Jerusalem is going to lead to his death. And yet he marches on like Isaiah prophesied in chapter 50, whose face is set like a flint. Think about that. This slow, difficult journey to, to his brutal torture and murder. The 12 don't, don't get it. Maybe just the thought of him suffering is too much. They didn't want to go there. They didn't want to think about it. Maybe, maybe God is choosing just to blind them to this truth. But, but here's what we do know. This whole thing of Jesus having to suffer and die and be humiliated, it did not fit their, their theology. They expected this Messiah to be a king who would defeat all their, their enemies and sit on this physical earthly throne. They, they were looking for a coronation, not a crucifixion. They couldn't wrap their minds around it. So not only do we have to recognize the foolishness of our own effort, we have to recognize the wisdom of the cross. Our efforts are foolishness. The, the cross, in the cross, the mystery of the gospel is all wisdom. It's, it's what the rich young ruler couldn't see. It's what the disciples couldn't even see until they saw him risen from the dead. The mystery of the gospel, Paul writes about it in Colossians chapter 2. He says, I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, like Jesus is the mystery. He is the hidden knowledge. This is what the disciples, again, were, were just days away from finally understanding. Their eyes would be open to the wisdom of the cross. Do you remember when your eyes were open for the first time to the wisdom of the cross, to the, the good news of the gospel? What was it like to, to finally realize that your sins were forgiven? Being a follower of Jesus is, is not just believing things. It's making him Lord of your life. It is the only way. This week is city seven, number three. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Read this with me. Since all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, Jesus had to die on the cross to pay the fine for my sin so I could be Right with God. See, we, we were reading this week um, from, uh, what's, what's his name? Uh, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. It's a very, very, very thick book about theology. And we're reading about the atonement of Christ. And he's making the point there, you know, it, it says, 
Jesus had to die. Like he had to. But, but here's the thing. God didn't have to choose to save anyone. He didn't have to. God made the choice to save us so he could have a relationship with us. But because of that choice, now, now Jesus has to die as a sacrifice, right? To atone for, for our mistakes, our sin. He became sin and shame for, for us. He laid down his life so that we could have a relationship with him. Because the wages of sin is death. There is no good that's good enough. Have you made the decision to follow Jesus? Maybe, maybe your eyes for the first time are being opened to the wisdom of the cross. Maybe you're realizing you, you've, you've tried to earn some kind of relationship with him, some kind of religious standing just through trying to get to church on a regular basis or try to, try to be a good person, and, and you're realizing like that, that's not going to cut it. Man, make the decision today to, to follow Jesus. Surrender your life to him. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He wants to be Lord of your life, not some kind of addition to your life. Verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. When he heard the noise of a crowd going past, he asked, what was happening? They told him that Jesus the Nazarene was going by. So he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, the people in the front yelled at him, but he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. As the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, all right. Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see and he followed Jesus, praising God. And all those who saw it praised God too. So here's our, our third little piece of the story. Matthew and Mark in their accounts, they, they both actually say there were two men here. And they named this one. His name is Bartimaeus. Luke, for some reason, just focuses on, on the one but doesn't give his name. But this guy's blind. He's begging there's a lot of blind people in those days, a lot of birth defects, a lot of disease, maybe injury. But again, they, they saw it as God's punishment for sin. That, that, that's what culture assumed. Him or his parents or someone really messed up bad. That's why he's, he's blind. Now he's having to, to beg. And remember for a second where Jesus is headed. I mean, he's days away. He knows what he's about to have to endure. You know, think about having to be interrupted by this blind beggar screaming at you, right? And yet, Jesus, if he ever had a legitimate reason to ignore someone, it was then. The disciples didn't even want him to be interrupted. But, but again, it's about Jesus' compassion. He chose to love despite the circumstances, despite his mood, Despite what was coming down the road, it's awesome. The rich man called Jesus, good teacher. What does the blind man call him? Son of David. 
He's acknowledging him as Messiah. He, he's it's such a contrast, all right? He says, have mercy on me. Be, be gracious. He's recognizing his lack of merit, right? So again, totally opposite from the rich man. I've done all this stuff. This guy's saying, have, have mercy on me. Nothing was going to keep him from Jesus. And Jesus says, what can I do for you? He says, oh, man, I want to see. He says, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. But again, this word for heal does not mean heal. It's the word for saved. Once again, he, he gets his physical healing, but, but Jesus knows there's so much more than that, right? The physical healing is just a temporary thing. This guy still eventually died. But he got something so much greater. He got spiritual healing, and he praised God. Once again, this is more than, than just a miracle. This, this points to something else. Jesus used blindness to, to, to illustrate spiritual ignorance. And you have a blind man living on the side of the road, reduced to, to begging. He confesses Jesus as Messiah. He knows he's the one to, that has the power to restore sight to all of humanity. And this guy's faith leads to, to, to restoration. See, sight was impossible to receive on his own. Have to re realize the foolishness of our own efforts, recognize the wisdom of the cross and receive the miracle of sight. Receive the miracle of sight. Look at the, juxt the juxtapositions here, the contrast between the rich guy and, and the, the blind beggar. It's kind of like last week. You remember when Jesus gave the parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee and the tax collector being like, oh, woe is me. I'm, I'm, I'm just a sinner, right? He's beating his chest. And then you have the Pharisee who's like, at least I'm not like that guy. You remember that contrast? It's the same thing here. You have a blind man who assumed God's punishment in his life and the rich guy that assumed God's blessing. Blind guy called him son of David. Rich guy called him good teacher. Blind guy received salvation and physical healing. That the miracle of spiritual and physical sight, the rich guy went away sad. The irony of all ironies, the blind now see. The righteous, the unrighteous become righteous. And the seeing have become blind. And the righteous have become unrighteous. See, it's time to, to, to open your eyes, receive the miracle of sight. Don't be the rich young ruler, which is our tendency. Be the blind beggar. Be the, the tax collector who is beating his chest. But, but here, here's the key. Only God can open our eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it's hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Satan is at work in all of this. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of, of God. See, see, our eyes can't be open to the truth and the wisdom of the cross unless God does that miracle in us. So here, here's our big idea today. We're putting it all together. It's very long, but realizing the foolishness of your effort and recognizing the wisdom of the cross requires the miracle of sight. God has to do that miracle in you. Paul goes on in verse five. He, he, he explains this. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. 
We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that has seen the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. I heard this illustration from Tommy Nelson years ago. He, he said it, it would be like this, like, this whole rich young ruler thing, what does it take, you know, what do you have to do to, to earn eternal life? What if you ask Jesus this, what does it take to enter into eternal life? And, and he said, you got to run really fast. What would your follow-up question be? How fast? Right? There's got to be some standard. He says, you know Usain Bolt? Yeah, yeah, not even Close. Not even close. And like the disciples, you would be like, then who, who could possibly be saved, right? When your standard is good, you have to ask the question, how good? It's not about our own effort. The rich man, you know, it's his question, what must I do? But what question did Jesus ask the beggar? Jesus asked what he could do for him. The rich young ruler was an earner. He earned everything he had. He earned his money, his reputation, his job. He, he knew that if I do A, B, and C, I'm going to get X, Y, and Z. If I do enough, I can have peace with myself. I can have peace with God. If enough people respect me, if they like me, if they say I did a good job, if they're impressed with me, like I'm just going to feel better about things. I'm going to have this, this hole inside me filled by, by, by something. We're all desperately seeking these things in our culture. I mean, just look at social media, and I'm convinced more and more it is a cancer of the soul. When you put so much pressure on yourself to perform, you're going to fail. In our spiritual lives, because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, there is no pressure to perform. The pressure we feel doesn't come from him. Re religion says, do better or else, right? But, but the wisdom of the cross says it is already done. So my, my prayer for us today is that God would open our eyes to this, this beauty of, of the freedom of the gospel, realizing that all of our, our earning and, and striving and reaching doesn't do anything to get us closer to God. It's time to take the pressure off. This the system of trying to, to do things to make ourselves okay. It's, it's never going to bring you peace. And again, I'm, like I said before, maybe there's some of you that, that man, you're a believer, right? You, you know you're going to heaven, but there's just something missing. See, we, when you behave like what you do makes you okay with God, how do you ever know if enough is enough? This is, this is this hamster wheel of failure. 
always thinking God is mad at you, disappointed, waiting for you to screw up again so he can zap you. There's so many of us on that, that, that treadmill. Like you wouldn't say it theologically, right? But, but practically it's how you live. It's how you behave. And Jesus is telling us, listen, this earning system is not going to work. This was, this was my, my entire life. Like, you know, I grew up in a, a wonderful church with wonderful people. My parents raised us the right way. But the theology of our, our church denomination was a little, little off, very works-based. I, I spent my whole life wondering, am I good enough? Have I done too many bad things? Did I lose my salvation today? Am I going to miss the rapture? I mean, it was a constant thought. And I'm not, parents out there, I'm not condoning tattoos, but almost every tattoo that I have points in that direction, like a reminder. That's not about my effort. It's about his grace. I have the Hebrew word for forgiven because I'm forgiven yesterday, today, forever. I have a a cross that kind of grows into this rooted tree in Ephesians 3.17 that says, your roots will grow down into God's love to keep you strong. To remind me that, that I'm, my salvation, it's, it's, it's anchored in the work of the cross. The first few bars of amazing grace to remind me that, yes, I, I, I was blind, but, but now I see because of, because of his grace. you learn to live in the freedom of the gospel out of who you are in him right it changes everything you'll still fail but you won't fall you'll have so much more joy so much more peace in your life. You'll grow more and more like him every day because you realize that, that he's on your side. He's not mad at you. Yes, he still hates sin. Yes, we, we get disciplined for sin in our lives, but, but he wants to help us grow through it. When you realize Jesus empathizes with us, not, not in our sin, but in our temptation. Why? Because he too was tempted in every way that we were tempted. He, he, think, about, think about the weight of temptation, that, that itch that never gets scratched. It's like the the weight of temptation is heavy and Jesus knows that. And and when we're in those moments of temptation, when we're already feeling like condemned by God just because we're being tempted, Jesus is, his heart is breaking for us. When you realize you don't have to be a slave to sin, you begin to change from the inside out. Following Jesus is about unrivaled affection. It's not just believing things about Jesus. Even, even the demons believe the things about Jesus that make him Messiah. They believe that he's the son of God. They believe that he was risen from the dead. He's the only way for a relationship with Jesus. But the one thing they cannot say is I love Jesus and there are no rivals to my affection. If money is in the way, get rid of it. If a job is in the way, get rid of it. 
If your pride is in the way, get rid of it. Jesus is saying to you, you, you know what I want from you? It's not church attendance, religious duty. It's not you singing your songs. All those are good things. He's saying, I want your heart. I want your unrivaled affection and devotion. Does he have yours? Would you bow your heads with me? Just in this moment, allow God to search your heart. Is there something missing? Have you been trying to strive to follow Jesus out of your own effort, always feeling like a failure? Just remind yourself of the reality of, of, of who we are in this moment. Yeah, we're, we're sinful, broken people, but we are forgiven and we are fully justified. That, that means, like Colossians 1 says, that we, you know, we stand before him holy and blameless without a single fault. Like we are the righteousness of Jesus. God looks at us, he sees Jesus' perfection. But then Paul goes on in verse 23 to say, you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Our tendency is to drift. And so just make it your prayer. Now, God, remind me who I am in you. And show me what it means to live out of that, that freedom, out of that new identity in, in you. I'm, so, I'm just so tired of striving and trying and scratching and clawing and failing. God, I realize in this moment that Changing from the outside in does not work. God, change me from the inside out. Help me to, to live in the freedom of the wisdom of the cross. I can't do it on my own. And God, we, we, we pray that, that you do for so many here what only you can do, give the miracle of sight. Change our hearts, Lord, in your name. Amen.